Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Can He Do That listeners? I'm Allison Michaels. My colleague Lillian Cunningham created the Presidential Podcast back in 2016 to explore, in 44 episodes, the legacies and lives of each American president. And this week, we're sharing three of them, the stories of the three American presidents to face impeachment before President Trump. The episode you're about to hear is about President Richard Nixon. He was the first, and so far only, person to resign the presidency. Technically, he wasn't impeached, but he left office in 1974 when he realized he was about to be impeached. For this episode, Lily interviewed journalist Bob Woodward, yes, the same Bob Woodward who helped break the Watergate story, about Nixon's life, his presidential traits, and what it was that led to his downfall in office. To hear more of her episodes on each of the American presidents, check out Presidential on your favorite podcast platform or at WashingtonPost.com slash presidential. Now, here's the story of Richard Nixon. The day he resigned, he said it. Uh, He called all of his aides and friends and family to the west wing of the White House just before he left on the helicopter. A couple of hours before he actually left office through resignation. And he had his wife and daughters and son-in-laws there. And it was a rambling talk about the grievances he felt. Uh, His mother wasn't treated right. His father was poor. And then at one point he raised kind of with his hand indicated, this is why I called you all here. And then he said, always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. It was the hate that was the poison that destroyed him and his presidency. And at that moment, To his credit, he understood it. That's Bob Woodward, one of the Washington Post reporters who uncovered the Watergate scandal that brought down Nixon's presidency. I'm Lillian Cunningham, also with the Washington Post, and this is the 36th episode of Presidential. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A date which will live in infamy. This episode is going to focus on Watergate and Nixon's resignation, looking at what it was about Nixon's personality and his view of power that ultimately led to, as he said, a sort of self-destruction. 
I do think some early biography is always important, though. So before I turn back to Bob Woodward, I'm going to tell just the short version of Nixon's pre-presidency story. So Richard Nixon was born in Yorba Linda, California, in 1913, and his family lived on a lemon ranch. But the ranch failed while he was still a child, and it left his family in financial distress. So they moved to a nearby town when he was about nine years old, and his family ran a gas station that was part grocery store. His father was supposedly a pretty aggressive, angry guy, and his mother was the gentler one. She was a devout Quaker. They had five sons, and Richard was the second. But two of Richard's brothers died from illnesses while they were boys. Now, Nixon was a great student all through high school. He actually won an award and a scholarship to attend Harvard. But because his family didn't have enough money for the additional expenses of sending him there, he instead went to the local college, Whittier College. And while he was there, he was president of the student body. He won that election mostly because he supported having dances on campus. Very cute. Uh, but he actually always had something of an affinity for the arts. In addition to debate and student politics, he played several instruments throughout his life, and he was also always interested in theater. In fact, he later met his wife, Pat, because they were both cast in a production of The Dark Tower, a sort of mystery drama put on by a small theater company. Anyway, he went to law school at Duke University on a scholarship, and then he joined a law firm back in his hometown after he didn't get some of the more high-profile jobs he applied for, including a job at the FBI. Then in World War II, he joined the Navy. And once the war was over, he returned to California, and that's when he really started to get into politics, and he ran for a seat in Congress in 1946. Now, he won that seat as a Republican in a big upset against a five-term Democratic congressman. And from that point on, he has a very fast political rise. He serves that first term in Congress, and then he runs for a Senate seat in 1950, and he wins that as well. Then only two years after that, Dwight Eisenhower picks Nixon as his vice presidential running mate in the 1952 election. Of course, they go on to win the election, and this makes Nixon vice president at only 40 years old. It's worth pointing out, though, that along the way, he starts to gain a reputation for negative campaigning, where he seems to be winning a lot of these races mostly by attacking his opponents and finding their weaknesses rather than focusing on his merits as a candidate. All right, so he's vice president for two terms, and then once Eisenhower is ready to leave office, Nixon tries to move from the vice presidency to being president himself. So he runs in the 1960 election against John F. Kennedy, but he ends up losing. Kennedy beats him by the smallest popular vote margin in U.S. history. And that loss deeply stung and shaped Nixon. He wrote later in his memoirs that, quote, from this point on, I had the wisdom and wariness of someone who had been burned by the power of the Kennedys and their money and by the license they were given by the media. I vowed that I would never again enter an election at a disadvantage by being vulnerable to them or anyone on the level of political tactics. That loss 
was followed two years later by another loss when he ran for governor of California in 1962. After that defeat, Nixon gave a famous press conference where he said to the media, you don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. But after several years of licking his wounds, he was back. In 1968, he ran for president again, and this time against Lyndon Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey. And Nixon wins. Okay, so there are, of course, many things other than Watergate that we could discuss about Nixon's presidency, which started in 1969 and ended with his resignation in 1974. Most notably, Nixon tends to get a lot of credit for his foreign policy achievements. He made a historic trip to China that set the U.S. and China on a course to more peaceful relations. He also struck an agreement with the Soviet Union to limit the number of nuclear missiles that they had. And he signed the Paris Peace Accords, which ended America's military involvement in the Vietnam War. But he is also the only president in American history to resign the office of the presidency. So we're going to talk about that. And the person we're going to talk about that with is, as I said, Bob Woodward. He was one of the most influential reporters in uncovering the scandals of the Nixon White House that led to the resignation. And I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to use this episode to ask his reflections on Nixon's downfall. Now, if we flash back to 1972, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein were two junior reporters at The Post. And they're now often described as having broken the biggest story in American politics. What happened was that they started looking into a burglary at the Democratic National Committee headquarters that were at the Watergate building complex here in D.C. And their effort to find out who was responsible for the burglary ultimately led them all the way to the presidency itself. In the four decades since then, Woodward has continued to unearth even more on Nixon. Just last year, he published a book called The Last of the President's Men, which revealed a trove of new documents and previously untold stories from Alexander Butterfield. Now, Butterfield was the aide to Nixon, who originally disclosed that the president had a secret audio taping system. And this is what provided the main evidence for Nixon's involvement in the Watergate scandal. So without further ado, with me here in the Washington Post studio is Bob Woodward. Bob, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. To start, could you paint sort of a psychological portrait of Nixon, the man? So if you were to distill him down to a few traits that you think really shaped and defined him, what would some of those be? Well, of course, we have these thousands of hours of secret tape recordings that have become public uh, as a result of the Watergate investigation. And there's much more about him, not just on Watergate, but on Vietnam, on domestic policy, his relationship. So it, there is a psychiatric portrait of him that emerges and what you see is a great deal of paranoia that he 
converted the office of the presidency almost to an instrument of personal revenge, that he would use the IRS, the FBI, the CIA, even the Secret Service, any instrument of government to get back at the people who were real enemies or perceived enemies. And so he strayed off the path of what the presidency is about. Presidency has to not look inward but outward. President must uh, define what the next stage of good is for a majority of people out there, not for him, not for her. He was so obsessed with himself that he um, didn't figure out what the job was and he thought it somehow was uh, central that he retained power. Do you have a sense of where that came from, the paranoia um, and that sort of sense of vengeance? He was a, a street fighter in politics when he ran for Congress the first time in the 40s, when he ran for the Senate, when he ran for vice president. And uh, it was... A, a sense of the establishment is after me. The establishment doesn't understand me. Uh, and I try to think and have for many years thought about what was Watergate? What, what was this thing that did him in? It was that hate. He uh, went after anyone that was an opponent and, and wound up really attacking the electoral system we have in this country, that spied on opponents, tried to sabotage their campaigns in a, in a way that un, unheard of, hiring people to go out and spread false rumors, write out false press releases. The manifestation was Watergate and a Watergate mentality, and I'm going to do anything to retain power. You hear some of the descriptions of the paranoia and the willingness to lie, the feeling that everyone's out to get him. And to me, it starts to sound really similar, actually, to some of the descriptions of his predecessor, President Johnson. The most important part that is similar is that both Johnson and Nixon wanted to overpower people and everything, control everything. So what's an example of that for Nixon? Like an example even early in his presidency of that paranoia and his desire for control? Uh, one was Christmas 1969 and Nixon had been president almost a year and he's going over to the staff offices in the executive office building next to the White House and he he sees that lots of people have pictures of John F. Kennedy on their desk or on the wall. And uh, he goes berserk and orders the, uh, Butterfield to get rid of these pictures and replace them with Nixon. And I kind of thought maybe this was a bit of an exaggeration. And uh, then uh, – what one of the things that happened, Butterfield wrote a memo to Nixon about how he got Nixon's pictures 
to replace the 22 Kennedy pictures that he found. In some cases where the president had personally signed it to them. And uh, in in the uh, memo, uh, the heading is sanitization of the staff offices. Mm. Sanitization, if somehow getting rid of Kennedy pictures was a cleansing operation. Incredibly bizarre. And Butterfield had to work on this and get pe- investigate people, try to, you know, they were worried about whether these people were loyal to Nixon and so forth. And uh, if if he could have relaxed and realized there was just a lot of goodwill, even Democrats felt toward him. He couldn't find a way to leverage that goodwill to his advantage. It was, we're going to get him. And then when he was reelected in 72, you know, he said, now we're really going to get people. It's going to be payback time. And this, this is what's a sad component of all of this. It was very little joy in being president. Mm-hmm. Um, joy was actually kind of the heart of our Theodore Roosevelt episode. <laughs> Someone who seemed to take a lot of joy in being president. But yes, <laughs> and um, Theodore Roosevelt took a lot of joy in living. Right. Uh, Nixon did not. His Butterfield told me we went through dozens of hours of interviews about his experience, and he'd never really told it before. Uh, There are uh, scenes, one comes to mind, where uh, Butterfield is riding in the presidential helicopter with Nixon and the First Lady. And Pat Nixon says, oh, Dick, let's go up to New York. Christmas is coming. We'll take the girls be a good time. We'll go to a show. And Nixon is there writing something out on his yellow legal pad. Uh Just totally ignores her. And she keeps going, you know, dick, you know, kind of nothing. And and Butterfield was just uh, astounded and horrified that there wouldn't be the kind of, yes, dear, let's talk about it or we'll consider it. It was just closed off his own wife. Wow. Same time, there are documents in the Butterfield archive that show Nixon knew how to play to people's egos. And there's a dinner at Camp David that was recorded. You find Nixon's able to talk to his cabinet in, in, a, in a very human, almost humorous way and play on their ego. and But He would then drift back into the automatic pilot of anger mode. Hmm. It was that sense of isolation, that sense of a personal crusade to do things, to accomplish things. At the end of the day, 6.30 at night, Nixon would leave the Oval Office and walk over to his private yet another office in the executive office building that was more casual and he'd be there and he would have dinner alone and and writing things out on the yellow legal pad. Now your president of the United States, you'd think he'd want to go with his family, which he, he didn't want to do too often. He, he can talk to anyone in the world, right? 
And you would think he would have some more curiosity about that, but he wanted to be alone. And the, and, and uh, Butterfield described and other people worked for Nixon going into that private office he had, and he'd have his feet up and have his jacket on. And uh, no, there, was, <laughs> there was just this sense of uh, chill out. <laughs> Enjoy it and and look for what good you can do for people. Now, to his credit, sometimes he did on some things. But again, it was this drive and this paranoia and this score-settling attitude. Mm-hmm. What are the couple of redeeming qualities? Uh, he did some things in foreign policy. Uh, the opening to China was significant, and he leveraged it, uh, I would even say, brilliantly. Uh, the same relations with the Soviet Union. He had some domestic pluses, creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and so forth. So there were things in all of this illegal, uh, corrupting, and ugly debris that are uh, quite positive and quite strong and quite human. Mm-hmm. But um, that pales. So do you feel like you have a sense of why he wanted to be president, why he wanted power in the first place? He wanted uh, to be president in part to show people. Uh, he he resented deeply the Eastern establishment, the people, and he talks about this on the tapes, the people who had it all, the people who had it handed to them. He, he wanted to be a renowned leader also. And uh, he did not perceive or have a system or relationships with anyone who could kind of tell him, hey, you know, what's going on in this presidency? It's it's running off the rails and finally off the cliff. Mm-hmm. His national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, you see time and time again, uh, Kissinger kind of uh, fawning uh, the sycophant to Nixon and Kissinger was smarter than that and would try to steer things his way, but he he would never overtly, to my knowledge, challenge Nixon and say, no, no wait, what are we trying to do here? There is a memo that Butterfield gave me, what I call a zilch memo on a top secret document Nixon wrote a handwritten note to Kissinger about the bombing in Vietnam and said, we've done it for three years and it's achieved zilch. It's been a failure. doesn't make sense. And then you look at the record and uh, at that point, this is January of 1972, just as Nixon is beginning to run for re-election, he's dropped three million tons of bombs in Southeast Asia. And he says it's accomplished nothing. It's been a failure. Doesn't make sense. Accomplished zilch. I was stunned when I read this. And then you look and you see that in 72, he intensified the bombing. And 
the tapes show that it was in large part done because it showed how tough he was and the polling showed the public wanted more bombing and toughness. And uh, he, So even though he knew it was not effective, he still did it just for the look of it. Yeah, and I mean that's – it's an equivalent corruption to Watergate. And uh, that to me – when I saw it last year, was a, a stunner. I thought, you know, how could you have lost your way that you would do that? And uh, essentially killing thousands of people in Cambodia, North Vietnam, Laos, to put down a political marker. Now, presidents don't like to lose wars, but Realism needs to overtake that at some point, and you need to say, if you're commander-in-chief, what are we accomplishing, and are, are we killing people with a purpose? What do you feel like has changed the most about um, your understanding of Nixon? The more the record comes out, uh, these Butterfield documents and his stories and more tapes, they still haven't released all of the tapes, believe it or not, uh, the story gets worse rather than better. So maybe before we even get to Watergate in particular, 1971 is the publication of the Pentagon Papers. That's also the year you started at the Washington Post, right? Yes. Um, could you describe what the climate was like to be in journalism at that time and um, and already sort of what friction there was between the Nixon administration and the press? It was substantial and you could feel it in the air had contempt for the press because they they seemed to be after him. He also worried uh, that people could find out who he really was. He, he was a concealed person. You know, at one point he says uh, in one of these tapes, uh, the problem is we've been too open with the press. And, of course, it, it's the opposite. And time and time again you see just doesn't tell the truth. He doesn't level. And of, of course, then when people would challenge him and say there's information that contradicts what you said, and that was the Watergate story in many ways, he would just become more and more infuriated. When I came here in September of 1971, it was three months after the Pentagon Papers battle, which of course the press had won in the Supreme Court. And, of course, that uh, angered Nixon. And part of the secret operations were going after Daniel Ellsberg, who had leaked the Pentagon Papers first to the New York Times and then uh, here to the Washington Post. And uh, the editor was Ben Bradley and his wasn't partisan. People have said he was part. He wasn't partisan. He was he was looking for a good story. He was interested in uh, getting underneath, getting to uh, what was hidden. And of course, there was. I think his instincts told him there was much hidden about Nixon. So um, 
obviously the Pentagon Papers in part revealed the extent to which Johnson and his administration had lied to the public about parts of Vietnam. And um, so there's already, it seems, this breach of trust that people are feeling with the presidency. And then along comes Watergate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there are probably a number of listeners who have a sort of vague understanding of Watergate, but might benefit from having you just sort of lay out, you know, what did Nixon do? And what really did Watergate encompass? Uh, You're right to pinpoint the Pentagon Papers in 1971. But we now know from the tapes and documents and testimony and the memoirs of people who worked for Nixon that uh, Watergate really was five wars. And the first war began in 1970 before the Pentagon Papers, and it was directed at the anti-war movement. Uh, Nixon uh, believed uh, in carrying out the Vietnam War, and there was this vast anti-war movement which was having an impact. So they developed what's called the Houston Plan, uh, top secret plan in 1970 to break into uh, homes and offices of people who were connected with the anti-war movement. It was uh, later rescinded when the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, objected, not because of the legality or the morality, but Hoover thought breaking into people's homes and apartments and wiretapping was the bailiwick of the FBI exclusively. He didn't want other people involved in their tapes in which Nixon refers to the Houston plan, even though it's rescinded and, and, and says, let's implement it. And uh, proposed at one point in June of, of 71 of getting people to break into the think tank, uh, the Brookings Institute. It's an extraordinary tape. And if you listen to it, Nixon is just furious. And he, he says, I want us to go in and get those papers, do it on a thievery basis, blow the safe, and just couldn't get off it. So that's the first phase of Watergate, I think. This, uh, the second phase is really a war against the news media, which was reporting on Vietnam. That's when they hired Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt to try to ascertain where news leaks were coming from. And there was a war on Daniel Ellsberg, who had leaked the Pentagon Papers. And then there were 17 wiretaps on reporters and people in the Nixon White House thought to to be leaking. The third phase of Watergate is to take that Howard Hunt, Gordon Liddy team and send it over to the campaign, and the war was against the Democrats, break into their headquarters, spy on, sabotage the Democratic uh, candidates. And and this is the phase where you enter, since your reporting starts with the break-in at the DNC headquarters at in the Watergate complex. Yeah, and the fourth phase, uh, when... Nixon got caught was a war on justice. It was the cover-up. Let's keep the system from finding out 
what really happened. And then when the tapes were disclosed and everything came out, and he resigned uh, in 1974, he spent much of the next 20 years declaring, and this was the fifth war, the war on history, to try to say, oh, Watergate wasn't much. So you see those as the five pillars Anyone who is going to oppose and challenge him, and first it's the anti-war movement, then it's the news media, then the Democrats, the political opposition, then the investigators who are looking into this, the Senate Watergate Committee, the impeachment inquiry, and so forth. And then when he loses and resigns, uh, it's a rear guard action against history. Um. What do you think has changed most about the nature of the relationship between the press and the presidency since Nixon? It's not a healthy relationship. Uh, remember a number of years ago, Al Gore, after he'd left the vice presidency, I asked him, how much do we know about what really goes on? What percentage of what occurs in the what occurred in the Clinton White House when you were vice president that is of consequence, do we not now know? And uh, Gore said, we only know 1%. Now, he, he was joking, and that's extreme. I think we know 50, 60, 70%. But often the most significant things we don't know. They're hidden. And the relations with the press are... Uh, the message managers have so much more control in the White House and the various departments, and they want to have it on their terms. And there is not, there's not that level of uh, candor and straight talk that actually serves people who are presidents quite well. Uh-huh. It certainly was awful in the Nixon White House, the relationship between the media and the White House. Now it's um, it has its ups and downs, but it's not good. There is, uh, and I I can understand that on the part of presidents because anytime there's something negative, press is going to jump on it. Watergate, I mean, Watergate signaled really the lowest point in trust for the presidency, um, but a, a very high point for trust in journalism. You know, certainly the investigations, I think, inspired a lot of people to even want to be journalists, to consider journalism public service. But if you look around today, trust in our elected leaders is very low. Trust in the press is very low. I think it's easy to overstate uh, what happened back in the 70s. We and others did some stories, but it was really the Senate the House of Representatives, the special prosecutor who dug into this, uh, one of the little snapshots, which is quite surprising, when they, the Senate set up the Watergate Committee and Democrats were in control, the resolution went to the Senate floor and it passed 77 to 0. Dozens of Republicans voting to investigate their president because there was a feeling we need to know. You know, there's a lot of 
smoke out there. Now you would never get the Senate to agree to anything, let alone an investigation unanimously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a particular uh, moment in time. It was, there was so much Nixon had been up to. So much was concealed. And it's my view if the tapes didn't come out, he, he would not have resigned. The tapes really showed the Republicans exemplified by Barry Goldwater who turned against him. I remember Goldwater telling Carl Bernstein and myself about Nixon. He said, too many lies, too many crimes. Do you think that Nixon's resignation in some ways helped restore some faith in the presidency and the idea that at least if we have people unsuited for office, they leave office? Or do you think it just, uh, do you think his resignation just furthered the American public's sense that they shouldn't have any well, faith in their leaders? Well, there are two different things. I, I mean, the what I think you can argue is that the system, the constitutional system, worked. Uh, Nixon uh, resigned because he'd lost the support of the Republicans, knew he was going to be impeached in the House, and Goldwater told him there were only four votes for him in the Senate. And the next day, Nixon announced uh, his resignation. So the the system worked, but it had – it's like a billiard ball going around the table, had a big impact on where we are now, I think. If you didn't have Nixon's resignation, you never would have had a Gerald Ford presidency. If you didn't have a Ford presidency and the distrust about the pardon, you probably wouldn't have had Carter in 76 with his purity, outsider, I'll never lie to you. If you didn't have Carter, you likely might not have had Reagan and with no Reagan picking George Herbert Walker Bush as his vice president, he wouldn't have had the first Bush presidency. And without the first Bush presidency, I don't think you would have had Clinton where an outsider could come in again. And uh, if you didn't have the Bush presidency, I'm not sure you would have had the Obama presidency. So the impact each of those presidents had on the next election is immense. Mm-hmm. Following his resignation, there was, you know, the slew of legislative reforms that came out in a way to try to restore the public's confidence in their elected officials and, um, you know, to rebalance the power of the executive office. Do you think that um, the reforms put in place were the ones that we needed? Well, you know, the, some of it worked, some of it didn't. Obviously, uh, restricting campaign contributions worked for a while, and now that's gone with the Supreme Court decision. People and groups and corporations can uh, donate endless amounts of money and, and put more money into politics. So in that sense, there's a failure. Uh, it's not something you can correct with laws. I think it's something you can correct with who is the person who's president. So what's the biggest leadership lesson that you take from Nixon's presidency? That the presidency is a 
sacred trust, that it's not something the person who is president owns or is entitled to, that uh, what needs to accompany that office is a great deal of humility. You listen to enough of those tapes and what uh, is important is the dog that doesn't bark. To my knowledge, no one ever says, what does the country need? What would be good? Uh, It was always about Nixon, settling scores, his political standing and future, how it could be leveraged. I think we need to learn the presidency is not about the president. The presidency is about the execution of the Constitution and laws within the defined framework in the interest of the people in the country. You never met Nixon, no, right? No. Do you wish that you had? or do We you tried. Carl Bernstein and I tried, but we uh, never got close. And he was quite angry at our stories. And, and that's, you know, that's under... Understandable. Do you ever get? Do you ever get tired of, <laughs> of him, of studying him, of thinking about him, of having your own life story so intertwined with his? It's something uh, tired. I, I don't <laughs> know because there are there's always new material and tapes and new dimension to Nixon. So. The ultimate lesson is history is never over. In the spirit of history never being over, I thought I'd end this episode by asking current Washington Post executive editor Marty Barron for his reflections on how the legacy of the Nixon era still reverberates in newsrooms today. I hear all the time from uh, people in the public who uh, refer back uh, to what the Washington Post did in the era of Watergate uh, and are calling upon us, demanding that we do the same kind of work, uh, that we hold our politicians accountable and that we dig uh, beneath the surface and that we keep digging and that we be persistent. Those events actually inspired a whole new generation of of journalists, uh, people of my age group, uh, to get into the field in the first place. I think it also uh, sharpened the definition of what our core mission is. Uh, It's certainly one of our most important core missions, and that is that we are supposed to hold powerful individuals and powerful institutions accountable. Many thanks to this week's guests, Marty Barron, and with enormous gratitude, Bob Woodward. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner. And next week, we will be discussing Nixon's vice president, who took office upon his resignation, Gerald Ford. And finally, just out of curiosity, do any of you want another podcast when this one is over? Uh, I'm thinking about whether we should do one, and if we do, what it should be. So if there's anything that you're dying to hear as kind of a season two... Um, I would love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at lillian.cunningham at washpost.com or you can reach me on our Twitter and Instagram accounts at presidential underscore WP. Thanks for listening.
This has been a special edition of Can He Do That, featuring an episode from the Presidential Podcast. Next time, we'll share with you the final impeachment throwback in this series, the Bill Clinton episode of Presidential. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Christmas Carol Alderman with production help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudall-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 